Welcome to Not Your Mama's Midlife Podcast with Stephanie Lee. On this show, we're going to talk about the experiences of high-achieving women and men across industries and lifestyles who are at about the midpoint in their career and are no longer satisfied to let life happen to them. Together, we're going to purposely create the second half of our lives by addressing burnout and overwork, by getting clarity on how we're creating the experiences of our lives, including how we're keeping ourselves stuck, by articulating what it is we want for the second half of our lives and identifying a plan to achieve it. And welcome to Not Your Mama's Midlife Podcast. Okay, I know the last few episodes I have said this is going to be a special episode, but this this too is going to be a unique episode. So we're one year in. Not Your Mama's Midlife Podcast actually debuted last year on July 28th. And so we are now celebrating one year of podcast episodes, which is hard to believe. You know, a lot of podcasts do less than 10 episodes. Uh, And so I'm really excited uh, to be doing 52. So in honor of that, I have gone through and clipped together um, highlights from each of my episodes that I want to share with you. It's funny with television shows, I'm the kind of person who loves it when a series ends and you get a blurb about what each of the characters go on to do in the future. I love when the story threads are wrapped up. When you have a show like The Sopranos, when it ends and everybody's sitting around the table in a cafe and you don't know literally if they live or die, I can't stand that sort of lingering sense. So I think that's the same part of me that really enjoys taking kind of a comprehensive look back at what the show looked like over the course of the last year. I'm so excited by how many of you have listened to the show, have watched the show, have come along with me and have seen the show evolve. And I'm already getting a sense for ways in which it's going to change in the year to come. In this episode, actually, you're going to see clips from each episode. And for those of you that are listening, if you're new to the show, this is a great way to get acquainted with it. If there is something you want to go back and listen to more of, what I would suggest is finding that clip on YouTube because it will also have a thumbnail with it of the episode that it came with. So you'll be able to associate that particular clip with a specific episode. And actually, if you reach out and DM me and say, Hey, Stephanie, I'd like to know more about what happened in this episode. I would be so happy to share that with you. So don't hesitate to ask at all. And I can save you that step. Again, it has been a pleasure to do this podcast over the last year. So I hope you enjoy this. Wait, is this all there is? Does it get better after? Am I having a midlife crisis? What even is a midlife crisis? Surely I'm too young for a midlife crisis. But what am I supposed to do now? I feel like I'm living the same day over and over again. If you're a woman in your 40s, just entering midlife and you're asking questions like these, Not Your Mama's Midlife Podcast is for you, friend. As your host, I recognize that midlife looks different for us, for late Gen X, early millennial women, than it did for those that came before us, both our mothers and our fathers. I like to say midlife isn't a crisis. It's a crucible. And personally, I don't want to waste the discomfort associated with this period of life. I want to leverage it and move forward. On this show, I will help you to get clear on the cause of your discontent. Figure out what you really want out of the second half of your life. Embrace midlife as a stage of growth and personal transformation. And develop a plan to move forward towards your dreams. But in the meantime, we're going to get you more ease in your life today. Something you'll learn from me early on is that we don't have to wait for the things in our lives to change for us to feel better. But more on that later. My name is Stephanie Lee, and I'm a life coach. Most importantly, though, I'm a woman in her early 40s who, in spite of a successful career and happy marriage, found herself asking those very questions. They led me to some important changes, and I'd like to tell you more about it. For sure, 
I would never have considered a podcast like this before my own midlife renaissance. So I saw a post in a Facebook group. I'm going to read it to you. I'm wondering where my life would be if I wasn't afraid of change. I know if you want your life to be different, you need to be different. But I'm afraid of failure, so I don't change. If I could talk to this woman, I would want her to know that she is not alone in her desire for something different. Also, that her fear of change doesn't mean there's anything wrong with her. And that it's actually good news. And that fear of change and failure doesn't mean she can't move forward with change. And really, the fact that she's aware of those things is huge and helpful. What I want for you, listener, and why I am a life coach and why I'm doing this podcast is possibility. A sense that all of the decisions have not been made. A sense that growth and change is possible. A sense of spaciousness and openness about your life, as well as one of your own agency. I want for you to be able to see that the path you are on, both the journey and the destination, are something you have created through your own thoughts and beliefs. The decisions that you made in the past and the way that you think and believe has created within you emotions that have caused you to show up in such a way that it has created the life you have now. We're going to talk a whole lot more about that in later episodes, but let me tell you, it is not about blame. And it is completely about empowering you. But because it is true that you have created your life, you can get rid of the along for the ride feeling and start driving the car again. I don't want to say too much about my mother-in-law's passing, both out of respect for my family and because it's still too raw. But I will say this. She passed away just as she was getting to the stage of her life where she was going to do what gave her pleasure. She had waited and worked hard and did what was required of her for years, and now was her turn. And then she got sick and we lost her, and she wasn't able to do those things that she had talked about. Watching that play out up close in the life of someone you love gives you perspective. And I did. I learned a few things. We think that we know our days aren't guaranteed and we shouldn't put things off. We talk about that but we behave on a day-to-day basis as if a healthy, long life is a given. We talk about it actually as being the responsible way to look at things, certainly from the perspective of our jobs and finances. The idea of delayed vacation being responsible in our early years so that you have the means to retire later. We don't actually know that there's going to be a later. I said on the first episode, and I'm reminded here, that you know, stereotypes is that millennials, one of, they're less focused on retirement. They're sprinkling more sort of tours and trips and things in their lives now because they don't believe necessarily that there will be money or time at retirement. And this is another way I'm finding myself beginning to identify with some of the stereotypes uh, that exist about millennials. So another thing I learned over the course of that year in particular was how much pleasure and joy my mother-in-law had derived from the things that she had been looking forward to. I think there is a part of us that thinks, and I did and certainly still do, how sad it is that she wasn't able to do those things. Might it have been better if she'd been more realistic and had just known it wasn't going to happen? But no, absolutely not. Her life was enriched by thinking and dreaming about the things she would do in her retirement even though she never got to do them. This was a surprise to me. I have been one who wants to be realistic, not really a dreamer, and I certainly don't want to be disappointed by not getting something I've gone after. But this experience really led me to rethink that. So we came home, and I decided there were things about my life that needed to change. I wasn't even sure what they were, but I knew they needed to change. If you are in a position where you would like to make a change or changes in your life, but you are burned out, exhausted, and overwhelmed, and just don't know how you would find the time or energy, consider the exponential impact of small wins. 
consider that you can make a big impact in your life over the long haul by finding tiny tweaks and adjustments that are manageable to implement in small doses. Because what I don't want to inadvertently communicate to you is that if you change an aspect of your life or personality or your job or something else, that you will be able to create happiness from the change of those external factors. In fact, changing your circumstances, moving to a new career, a new place, a new person, unless you also make changes to yourself, you're only going to take yourself with you and have the possibility of creating the same type of challenges there that you're experiencing here. So we're going to spend the next few episodes talking about stress and burnout and what to do about it. And our approach is going to be a little bit different perhaps than what you've heard before. So I'm going to introduce you to my three-step methodology to come to view the stress in our personal and professional lives as catalysts for our own growth to develop our resilience. And we're going to do this by changing the mindset that we have about stress, intentionally interspersing stress with rest and recovery, and by purposefully soaking in these experiences to leverage neuroplasticity. Likewise, you are viewing the things in your life through the lens of what you have learned and come to believe about them, your mindset about them. So what is a mindset? A mindset is as simple as a thought about a topic. Many times it could be a collection of thoughts about a topic. Mindsets can include both factual information and data, as well as our own or others' perceptions and evaluations or interpretations. We can also think of mindsets as a scaffolding or perhaps a shortcut, an easy way to look at something. Essentially, they save us mental energy and make our thinking more efficient. We're not starting from scratch each time. Sometimes our mindsets are well thought out and even something that we've actually developed purposefully. This is likely to be the case with something that we've learned about or studied academically or perhaps professionally, or maybe a controversial topic we've given a lot of thought to. But for the most part, our mindsets are absorbed and acquired and learned from our parents, our teachers, life experiences, things we've heard or read, and then they're kind of put together in our minds in a hodgepodge kind of way. You can have a mindset about anything from weight loss to what an equitable marriage looks like, what it means to be a good employee, or even what's appropriate to where to work. We have mindsets about important things and things that we don't actually give that much conscious thought to. And mostly, they're operating outside our awareness, filtering things, and as I mentioned, saving energy. Unless we are really intentional about digging them out and shining a light on them, or we start bumping up against them in some way with something that's happening in our lives, then we might give them conscious thought. Changing your mindset about stress is not about bypassing feeling bad. It's not about putting a positive spin on a bad situation, nor is it an endorsement of sort of the good vibes only toxic positivity that we're seeing on being tossed about on social media. The full human experience includes feeling bad. The full human experience includes all of the negative emotions. It's not that we would wish those away or skip over them or even try to abbreviate those experiences, though they're uncomfortable and we'd all like to do that. But when we bypass the hard parts, we miss out on any of the learning, growth, or development, or strength that we could experience during the hard times. The point of changing your mindset about stress is to realize that adversity, the pain, the hard part, whether large or small, can be an opportunity to grow and become stronger. It can be an opportunity to learn, to find meaning, and to connect with other people. You are a non-renewable resource. What you do today to take care of yourself isn't indulgent. You're taking care of the most important resource that you have, your body, your mind. 
We can't push ourselves constantly without appropriate rest and expect to live long, healthy lives. Whether you're an employee or a business owner, we find it hard to consider rest as part of the equation of our growth and development, unless there is a clear payoff in terms of quality and productivity. But when you think about what you want for the second half of your life, you are laying the foundation for that right now. What would it look like today to prioritize your physical and mental health and well-being so that you can more fully enjoy the second half of your life? How can you get started today? So I'm beginning here to extend the mental footprint of the experience. I can do this by extending the duration and intensity, and I can engage the experience in a multimodal fashion by engaging thoughts, sensations, emotions, desires, or even physical gestures. So we can extend the duration and the intensity simply within our minds. Consider how fleeting a positive experience might be. Just sticking with it briefly is extending the duration. Similarly, you can intensify the experience in your mind like you would any experience that you want to savor or fully lean into. You can also pull to the surface the thoughts that you're having. So with our example of focused work, you might be thinking thoughts like, it feels so good to have this behind me. I did good work there. I finished a lot more in that segment of time than I thought I could. And then you can label the emotions, satisfaction, achievement, maybe even a little relief. And in terms of physical gestures, for some people, it's helpful to put their hand on their heart or even to raise their arms in a victory stance. We can also look for the novel in the experience. What's different or new? How does this feel different from other experiences I've had like this? Maybe. How does it contrast with completing the task when I'm not focused? And we can find salience in the experience. What is meaningful to us? And a reminder, we don't need to do all of these things, but you have a lot of options here. So what resonates with you? The kind of quiet quitting that has you phoning it in is bad for you. The quiet quitting that appears to be deciding to have a full life should not be considered quitting at all. What do I mean by what you want? for the second half of your life. So how I want to live. And by that, I mean what I want my day-to-day life to be like, how I want to spend my time kind of routinely. Also, there are things that I want to do that I haven't done yet. Experiences that I want to have, places that I want to visit. There could be hobbies I want to try, could be some kind of one-off experience. Maybe when I think about what I want for the second half of my life, it's how I want to grow and change. Maybe it's goals that I have or ways that I want to set myself up for my later years. Planning for my physical health and vitality and mental health too. Doing the things that I need to do to be as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And then there are intangibles that I want to have. Maybe these are relationships, friendships, a great marriage, values that I want to live into, freedom, courage, possibility. Maybe it's actually things I don't want more of. People-pleasing, buffering away my time, living on default, feeling stuck, not believing that I could change my life if you want to. And you know that cosmic shopping list I referred to earlier? Maybe there are some things that you just want like a red car, a home with a view of the water or mountains, just things that are kind of on your wish list. Those are fine too. There are also things that you already have that you also want for the second half of your life. Why might we want to want those things we currently have? There are likely many things about your current life that you love and want to have in the second half. One thing about doing this work about purposefully thinking about what you want for the second half of your life is that people may misunderstand and think it's about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that you don't love your life, that you think you've made some bad choices. If you want something different, you must think that something is wrong with your life now. 
But it's entirely possible for you to want something different from your life without thinking that anything is wrong that needs to be fixed. And it's certainly not a blanket statement about your life or your satisfaction with it. And I'll return to this idea of wanting from a place of having in just a minute. So what do you already have that you want? These could be things like your career, if you love it and it fills you up. Your marriage, maybe? Your kids? It could be a value like self-love that you've cultivated and are proud of and believe is important to you. It could be a goal that you've already accomplished, something that you've achieved. What do you want that you already have? There may also be things that you have that you want more of, more time with friends and family, more unallocated time, more confidence, more experiences of something. There's something pleasurable about wanting what you have. So we know that one of the things our brains do is try to conserve energy, really try to streamline things. So we're getting up and we're doing something every day, like getting up and going to the same job or getting up and simply remaining married, perhaps, to the same person every day. We don't necessarily make a conscious choice each morning, generally speaking, to say, all right, I'm going to stay married or all right, today I'm going to get up and I'm going to get myself to work. And our brain is doing this in order to be efficient. And of course that's good. But I also think it has consequences. We make a decision for a period of time and then we feel like it's one and done and now we're locked in. But the reality is that we are choosing every day to stay married, to do the things that involve us staying married. We are choosing every day to get up and go to work or to get up and go to our office. But when we push those choices into that place of efficiency, into the background, sometimes it takes them out of our conscious awareness and this can create that feeling that I experienced and others experience of our life happening to us, of it being outside of us in some way. And it's really not. So it's just important simply to remember and acknowledge that those things are choices because it does give you some authority back for what's happening in your life. This week, we're building on what we talked about last week about stories and the bare facts of our lives and looking at how our stories create our feelings and emotions. Together, how we think about our lives and the various aspects of them and how we feel about them creates the experience of our lives. But if you have been trying to control people for any length of time, you've learned how ineffective that is. If you're waiting for them to be different so that you can experience something different, I have bad news. People get to do what they want, even if we think it's shitty. And when we dig in our heels and say, I deserve to be respected, she didn't show up on time, you're handing your friend, the same friend, by the way, who you're calling disrespectful, you're handing her responsibility for your emotional well-being. And that never works. The harder choice is to not keep pushing. The harder choice is to go against your perfectionism, your conditioning, your desire to please, your desire to be an A-plus student and take care of yourself. The harder choice is to let someone else misunderstand you or misjudge you. To let someone else disapprove. The harder choice is to come face-to-face with your own disapproval, your own need to hustle for your worthiness. So looking first to yourself for ways that you may wish to actually change your thinking allows you to see more clearly what the facts of the situation are and tease those out from the story that you're telling about it so that you might make a decision really with better information. And this is important It's not about forcing yourself to stay in a situation that you don't want to. You don't have to stay in the same place with the same facts and just come up with a different story to make yourself happy. But it can be empowering to know that you could. And it's also possible 
that working on your thinking about a situation will open up the opportunity for you to stay where you are, to recognize that this is where you want to be. Think about when someone tells you you've done something wrong. You get stressed. Your heart starts to beat faster. You're breathing heavier. You're trying to explain yourself. When your inner voice is harsh and tells you that you have done something wrong, you do the same thing. You're heaping stress on yourself. The world that we live in today is a mixture of incredible, staggering beauty and gut-wrenching pain. It has both. So do our lives. We think that we should be striving to be happy all the time. We've been told by culture and by what's socially appropriate that that's what we should be doing. That that's what we should expect from our lives. And perhaps some of you, as you think about what you want for the second half of your life, you think that you can engineer the second half so that you're happy all the time. You actually can't design yourself out of a 50-50 life. A lot of our perfectionism, a lot of the overwork that we do well past the point of diminishing returns is because of how we want to think about ourselves and how we want others to see us. This both contributes to our overwork and burnout, and it doesn't serve us or our clients or our organizations. And even more importantly, there isn't actually one more thing that you can do to convince yourself that you are doing a good enough job. There will always be one more thing you could do, especially if you're wired with a little perfectionism. How many things do we do on our jobs or on projects each day because we believe that they'll signal to others that we're doing a good job? And do those things actually improve upon the job that we're doing? Have you ever had a great idea about something at night? Maybe you're going to start a strength training program. Maybe you're going to take up a new hobby that's outside of your comfort zone, only to wake up the next morning in the harsh light of day with all of the reasons that it's a terrible idea going through your brain. We have a tendency to put all kinds of meaning around those experiences. We make those thoughts coming up mean that we shouldn't follow the good idea, that it wasn't a good idea after all. We assume the voice telling us all of the ways this could go sideways is our intuition, our wisdom. But what if, at least some of the time, those thoughts that come up are actually your brain sounding an alarm because it thinks whatever your good idea was is going to put you in harm's way. The holidays are rife with stories we're telling ourselves. The ways that things should be. What other families' holidays look like what we should be able to do and manage and sustain, how our kids should behave at their grandparents' house. Be kind to yourself and remember that our stories come from all over. Other people, things we've read or seen on television, ideas we're exposed to, things that we've inherited. We can find ourselves telling ourselves stories that we don't even believe or don't believe anymore. A lot of stories are likely to come up around the holidays See them as stories. When you have a thought that troubles you, question whether it even belongs to you and if it's a story that you want to tell anymore. So what do I mean by celebration? In truth, I'm not talking about parties, though those are great too. I'm talking about celebration as an intentional practice of looking for and recognizing good things, progress, insights, even what appear to be negative things that are actually representative of progress or a way to move forward. Rather than blowing up balloons and yelling surprise, these kinds of celebrations may simply be about you smiling to yourself about something you've done. Taking a few moments to say, yeah, I see that. So often the things that we tell ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves, they can end up getting all jumbled up. We have fleeting impressions of things that mattered or impacted us or didn't, but we don't spend enough time thinking about it to make sense of it. So I would encourage you to offer this sense-making exercise to yourself at the end of 2022. It can be as simple or as elaborate as it suits you. Part of waking up to our lives is the practice of reflecting on them, seeing what's there. The path to success is paved with failure. 
we may actually learn more from our failures than from our successes. But high achievers, we don't like failure. We want to get it right the first time. We like streaks and successes. So how can you plan in advance to learn when things don't go well? I asked you to get curious about your burnout, and judgment is the antithesis of curiosity. You will not be able to be real and authentic with yourself and get to the root of what is happening if you're judging yourself for it. It may not feel accessible to you now, but see if you can get your mind around the idea that you have been doing the best you could with what you knew at the time. You're burned out. You've lacked energy and motivation to make changes. You can do that now from a place of gentleness and kindness. And you need to make changes now from that place of gentleness and kindness so as to not add to your existing burnout. Notice your inner voice and how you talk to yourself. So here is the other rub. These responses, both sympathetic, fight or flight, and the dorsal vagal are happening in our bodies. And they can't just be addressed by changing the way that we think about stress. We need interventions at the level of our bodies as well. And while a lot of the things that we do about stress are body-based, exercise, yoga, massage, what these may not address, unless we're intentional about it, is the nervous system's core need for safety. Because while we as evolved 21st century humans know that we are not in danger from work stress or life stress, our nervous systems are still running from a predator and need to complete that stress cycle and return to safety. Step one is to check in with yourself and ask what you need. There isn't a recipe. You are the one living inside your body who can learn to tell when you're amped up in a sympathetic state headed towards or in collapse, or in a healthy state, undulating between your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. We're going to talk about the realities of burnout, especially for high achievers and those who are passionate about their jobs. And we're doing this because we hold a misconception that hard workers just expect and know how to manage a level of work that other people might get burned out from. And we expect that people who love their jobs believe that their jobs are important or feel a sense of calling for them are somehow insulated against the deleterious effects of burnout. And it's worth mentioning here, we talk about burnout so often largely as reflective of, of jobs, of career, but burnout is bigger than that. And so this, think broadly about responsibilities, particularly family responsibilities for care and things of that nature. These can also be sources of burnout and for some of the same reasons, might get dismissed because it is so important to care for that loved one, for example. But in fact, it's not true that loving your job or being passionate about what you do or working for something that's aligned with you missionally insulates you from burnout. High achievers often get a lot of their self-worth and validation from their jobs. And people who believe that the work that they do is important and aligned with their values, both can use these traits against themselves unknowingly and make their experience of burnout worse. At first blush, perfectionism may sound like it's a good thing, probably even something that's a key to success. You want things to be done at a high quality. You don't accept excuses. You expect excellence. But actually, this isn't what perfectionism really is. For a perfectionist, the bar isn't quality or even utility. The bar is the existence of any flaw at all, detectable by you or by someone else, whether that flaw impacts the outcome or use of the work product at all. Perfectionism is actually about how you're perceived by yourself and by others. And perfectionism actually often causes us to lose the plot of what's important in the work product. It causes us to be focused on a typo in our slide deck rather than whether or not our audience is able to grasp what we're trying to teach them. It causes us to think more about whether or not our audience thinks we know our stuff or are good at our jobs than whether the information we shared with them was truly useful. Done is better than perfect. No, it really is. 
This is a trap that I see high performers, high achievers, and those that work themselves into burnout fall into. Just like my client that I told you about earlier in the episode. We think that the part of us that's saying, just take a rest, is probably the devil on our shoulder. And the you should just push harder voice is definitely the angel. But I would suggest really that the reverse is true. It's our higher self that knows it's time for a rest. And it's actually the more primitive part of ourselves who's worried about how it looks and getting disenfranchised from the pack and saying that we need to buckle down and just work harder. When we identify and pursue small wins, smaller achievable goals along the way, suddenly things become a bit easier. That goal, it doesn't seem quite so insurmountable. We're able to see markers of progress. We see progress is indeed possible. We build confidence in our own ability to achieve. We build momentum and belief in ourselves. And we don't inquire quite the same amount of mental resistance to doing the thing, whatever the thing is. What got me here, that hard driving energy, isn't going to get me to what I want for the next chapter of my life. When you think about the type of rest that you need, to recover from the active work, the focused work within your life, what are those activities? What are the activities you're most looking forward to for rest? Because I think a lot of us are crashing on the couch. What is the environment within your body? How do you feel when you're engaging in focused work? If it were an engine, would you describe yourself as up in the yellow? Would you describe yourself as redlining? Are you comfortably within the green area? What does that feel like for you? What what does the experience of it look like for you? And additionally, if you are finding yourself getting up into the higher RPMs, are you able to bring yourself down into the green? Are you able to just drive as it were as a slower pace? Or is it a challenge for you to come down once you've gotten into that redlining zone? And if you take a look at the ways that you offer yourself rest and restoration, what are they? What are your favorites? And then what is similar about them? So I told you for mine that it's being out in nature, feeling connected, feeling relaxed, but also feeling alive and usually a groundedness and a sense of presence in my body and my mind, not going to the future and going to the past. So for yours, what are the characteristics of the ways that you find rest? And then how do those characteristics perhaps inspire you to find other ways to integrate more meaningful rest within your own schedule? What decisions are you failing to make right now? Because I bet you, like me, have some things that are dancing on the periphery of your mind that you know that you probably need to spend some time looking into, but maybe you can't right now. Maybe you're putting it off for a while. Maybe it's just too much. But what would it look like to spend some time on that decision in a constructive way perhaps with a coach by your side to make a decision that is ultimately best for you and to allow you to take the next step forward. These unmade decisions can seriously weigh us down. They can pull us back and create drag on our desire to move forward in our lives. So what is your taste? How is it reflected in your environment? How do you want it to be reflected in your environment? What are those things that bring you delight? What makes you happy just to look at it? How do you want yourself and who you are and your identity to be reflected in your home? What about your interests and your hobbies? Whatever is aesthetically pleasing to you. In the closet of our mind, probably most of the clothes are hand-me-downs. They're things that you've acquired from people in your life, from your parents, from your teachers and professors, from your bosses, from coworkers, from books you've read, from things you've seen on television. Most of the things you think are going to have been acquired elsewhere. Which of those things serve you now? Which of those things did you never even really choose or believe, but somehow they ended up in there anyway? And which of those are you ready to part with and let go of? The guest I'll have with me on the show today is Louise Lewis. I have a very different life. I sleep eight hours every night. I nap mm. every day. And so 
and it's night and day. And I've gone from being very controlling, very overbearing, very perfectionistic to less of all of those things. But, you know, mm. I'm still work in progress. My marriage has transformed. But what I will say about all of it is that every iteration of work that I do, there are more challenges. Feel very difficult for a while if I work through them and then they feel much easier. And so the honest truth of how it's felt is some days it's amazing and it's miraculous and I love it and I'm so grateful for everything that I've done. And other days it feels really hard. Yeah. You know, it is it is draining and exhausting sometimes to do this work. But mm. is it more draining and exhausting than having been a tax lawyer? No. And I am now doing something that feels like me rather than the me that I thought I needed to be to fit in a box to keep my parents happy or to yeah. keep society happy or to matter, to have some kind of value. So I was on a girl's trip last week and it is a trip that I have taken with mostly the same group of women, certainly at least two of whom are sort of part of the core. What makes this special is that we've been doing this now for so long. And for each of us, it has become a sacred space, a sacred container for real conversations where we can talk about the things that we are going through in our lives, the challenges that we're facing with our careers, with our relationships, the personal development and growth that we're going through, either intentional or because we're being dragged kicking and screaming into a period of growth. Give yourself the grace of knowing that you're doing the best that you can. Like I just said, there are going to be days when we don't do a thing that's productive or that looks productive from the outside, but we're actually taking care of ourselves. Give yourself the grace of believing you are doing the best you can, even with the use of your time. But we all know that we have these people that we deal with and often it might happen in the workplace or someone just frankly gets under our skin. And what do we do about that? But first, we're just going to take what's happening, our reaction to this person in some gentle awareness and have some compassion for ourselves and for how we're showing up. We're not going to judge ourselves for having what feels like a negative visceral reaction to an individual who is in our circles in our life. The second thing that we're going to do is we're going to turn that spotlight onto our own behavior. How do we want to show up? How do we want to show up separate and independent of something that is coming in reaction to something they say or that they do? Separate their actions from your response. Our third strategy is going to be to get to neutral to identify those little thoughts, those labels, those things that we're saying to ourselves, or you know what, maybe to other people too, about this individual and to find ways in our minds to change our language, to modify it a little bit. So the example I gave you earlier went from he's a bully to he's being a bully in this instance. He's being a bully around this dinner table. How can you find ways in your mind to shrink the negative characteristics that you're attributing to this person? And then the fourth suggestion that I made to you is to really hold this person in some part of you, in the part of you that's able to do so, to hold them in kindness and to recognize that everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And they also have a story and have challenges that you know nothing about. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Corinne Crabtree. So then what I had to do to make changes was the moment that I thought it wasn't good enough, I had to tell myself, Corinne, the only thing that's not good enough is you staying at home thinking mm. it's not good enough. You have to start with something. So I had to have those conversations. It's like I just had to have micro conversations with myself. It was like every step was full of doubt. I had to pick something I could change, but then work on changing the thoughts I had around it. That was all like, 
it really dawned on me when I was losing weight, I would catch myself in so many moments where I'd think, oh my God, like every time you talk to yourself like that, you set yourself up to feel terrible and quit. We just can't talk to ourselves yeah. like that anymore. I have a guest with me today and I would like to introduce Renee Suzanne. You can mm -hmm. still find love. You can still have this. It's not anything about meant to be. You decide what's meant to be. You didn't wait to see if your job was meant to be or if you were meant to live in the house you live in. Don't do that with dating. I want to help you today come up with some very simple strategies to allow you to savor the summer. And the first thing is just simply to notice. Intend to savor the summer. Make a plan to pay attention to what you do. So many times when we say after a period of time, I don't even know what I did, it's because we were operating on autopilot in some way. And we've just let things sort of unintentionally evolve. Maybe we haven't planned our vacations. Maybe things have just been sort of catch as catch can. And there's nothing wrong with spontaneity. But adding some intention in there and then really noticing what you did can bring to mind and allow you to Enjoy those experiences, both looking forward to them, the experiences themselves, and then recounting them at the end of the season and thinking about what they meant to you. Just start with one conscious breath, one conscious inhalation and exhalation. And as you do this, I would urge you to sort of feel in your body, to trace the breath all the way into your body and then back out as it exits. Maybe you do that a couple more times consciously, and maybe you don't. But it's another way of just simply bringing your mind to that often unconscious action of breathing. Take a moment just here while we're together. What are you feeling right now? What are the predominant emotions for you? If you take a moment just to check in. Do you know why those emotions are there? Do you know where they came from? How do you know that you're feeling those emotions? For most of us, emotions come up as physical sensations in our body. They can be really subtle or they can be stronger. So if I ask you how you're feeling and you notice that you're feeling, let's say, frustrated, where does frustrated show up in your body as a physical sensation? And I would ask you to just briefly notice where you feel it and pay attention to it. It's so interesting to me how rarely we pay attention to our own lived experience in the moment. We feel these things, we have these emotions and feelings, and we stuff them away or we push them away so that we can get on with the business of life. But our emotions are clues to what's going on with us. They give us good information. Try this a couple of times during the day. Check in, see what you're feeling, see what the prevailing emotion is at the moment. Just pay a little attention to it. I'd be curious how this experience is for you. And I think about our tendency to wonder when things get a little bit uncomfortable, when things aren't the way that we expect them to be, our tendency to look inward and say, what's wrong with us? We think, I might be depressed. This might be like a midlife crisis. Maybe it's perimenopause. But something's going wrong with me. Something external or internal, perhaps, is happening to me, and it has gone wrong, and I need to fix it. So what are the things that I might do to fix it? So I might need to get my head on straight. I might need to some, talk to some friends who are going to give me some tough love. I might need to get medicated. But something about this situation is broken and now needs to be fixed. And I wonder, what if instead we recognized that these times, these seasons of discomfort don't really mean that anything has gone wrong. 
they might be indicators that we're growing. And there are pieces of our life, there are ways that we have shown up in the world, there are relationships that are a little less comfortable than they were that might now require a little renegotiation, a new shell, if you will, to be, to, to be developed, a new structure, a new scaffolding for our lives that's a little bit bigger than it was before. When there's something where we'd like to, to change an aspect of us or we'd like to grow in some way, that we have a tendency to feel like in order to do that, we need to make ourselves wrong. And then when it's wrong, when something's bad about us, then there's a reason and there's an impetus for change. And I want to actually suggest that this tendency that we have to make ourselves wrong gets in the way of the changes that we would like to make. It doesn't help us to make them like we inherently believe that it does. This week, I'll be interviewing Allison Liu. So I now have daily habits that support my health and my brain, but I'm really intentional about, um, and my life has changed so much for the better that there's no way that I want to go back to how I was living before. So I'm talking about things like being careful about what I'm eating, Mm -hmm. uh, being very intentional about moving more, um, being super intentional about not living with chronic stress and understanding mm. just the negative impact that that has on our lives. And, you know, we all can experience, um, you know, short periods of stress. That's really common. Sure. But I'm now really committed that actually I, I can't, I won't tolerate being in a chronically stressful situation anymore. I just simply put it out into the world. Um, essentially that I was going to be reading Life in Five Senses by Gretchen Rubin and did others want to join me? So a couple of my takeaways from reading this book were all of the inputs that are going on around us and what felt to me like purposefully drowning those things out and shutting those things out to go about doing whatever I was doing. So you don't notice the birds singing. You don't notice the color of the sky. You don't notice the scent on the breeze of the laundry detergent or of the flowers or whatever the thing is. We tend to block those things out because so focused on whatever it is we're doing at the moment. And what would it look like to take moments throughout our day just to be more present with those things? I want more of that. All right, so thank you so much for joining me on that journey down memory lane of the first year of Natural Mom's Midlife Podcast. I hope you'll join me back here next week. I'm going to talk about the things that I have learned and experienced in the gaps, the foibles over one year of podcasting. Find me on your favorite podcast player or YouTube. It's been great chatting with you this week, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye.